Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm hanging out today with Andy Stallman in Mexico City. Uh, Andy, of course, is the best-selling author of a number of books, including Brand Off On. He's the CEO for Latin America and Europe for Cato Partners. And he's one of the world's renowned experts in branding. But he's also a really good guy. <laughs> and uh, I think, Andy, do you remember the first time we hung out was in Bogota, Colombia? Yeah, indeed. That was a couple of years ago. But I remember because you gave me a fantastic list of things and places to do uh, in uh, Barcelona, which was, was, was absolutely essential. Barcelona. I, I live in Barcelona for four years, and I think it's one of the best cities <laughs> to live and to visit. So if any of you are listening to this show and you want to know the right things to do in Madrid and Barcelona, then you can probably just stop listening to this and uh, send Andy an email. <laughs> I'm sure he'll, he'll give you the definitive insider's guide. We'll try to help everyone with insights, <laughs> of course. Uh, and, and of course, we're going to talk about the future of branding and marketing. But... You know, a good place to start, given that you you are, of course, based in Madrid, mm-hmm. is uh, Brand Spain. And and I've, I've been wondering about this because Spain is is going through a really interesting period at the moment. Yes. And, you know, both you and I spend a lot of time speaking in Latin America, so you sort of see the influence still of Spain. Uh, but what do you think in the 21st century Spain represents as a brand? I think uh, Spain has... A, um, gone through a massive transformation in the last, let's say, three decades. And uh, currently, uh, Spain has become one of the icons uh, to look at to see the best balance for working and life uh, balance, if you allow me to repeat the word, uh, in the world. Um, Brand Spain represents a a way of celebrating and enjoying life that it's... um, out of the question, um, the celebration of, as I say, <laughs> life and food and sports and everything is in every single little town across Spain. And also Spain uh, has become one of the three most powerful tourism destinations worldwide. So, right. so essentially it's a lifestyle proposition. Absolutely. I think it's a lifestyle proposition. Uh, it's uh, some things that you can find somewhere else, but all together, it's impossible to find to find elsewhere. Uh, during the boom days of the EU, uh, this was an easy case to make, and of course, um, you know, Spain's recovering now from uh, its economic crisis. Yeah. But it did, did look for a while as if their lifestyle brand was not really sustainable. Yes, indeed. Uh, um, Imagine that um, the last 20 years, the EU has injected massive amount of euros into Spain. Right. Infrastructures, uh, airports. You've got, well, uh, you've got actually one of the world's fastest trains, right? Yes. Uh, today, it's difficult to find a country that can have the, rail, the high-speed railroad uh, network that Spain has. Yeah. And... Uh, if, if, if you are used to receiving a lot of money for developing lots of things, then you are quite comfortable because you know the money is flowing. But what happens when the money stops coming <laughs> and you have to create the richness 
for keep doing things. Right, and which is exactly the same problem Greece is facing. Yes, indeed. But the big difference is that Greece has nothing but tourism currently. Uh, and olives. Uh, yes, of course, but that's not like <laughs> big added value resource to right. um, pay all the debt. Uh, Spain is a world leader in transplants. Uh, it's, as I was saying, a world leader in tourism. Transplants? Yes. What do you mean? Um, uh, you mean organ transplants? Organ transplants. Oh, right. Yes, it's, it's a world leader. Uh, this means two things. One is that the, the health system in Spain uh, is pretty much public, but it works currently very, very well. It's admired worldwide. But on the other hand, you find the cooperation and the solidarity of people. Because to be a leader in organ transplant, you need people that donate their organs. And um, this is something not well known because Spain is better known as for Rafa Nadal in tennis or for Barça and Real Madrid in football or for <laughs> beach and paella and flamenco. But they are um, very good business schools uh, rated in the top 10 or 20 in Europe like IE or IESE or ESADE. Uh, you have big players in the retail sector just as, you know, Inditex with Sara and so on. Well, 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 I mean what do you think was part of the, the Spanish innovation DNA that led to the creation of Zara? I mean, was this just uh, some very talented executives who happened to be Spanish? Or do you think that Zara is a quintessentially Spanish company? <laughs> Probably the, the, the second answer is, is, is the second option is closer to my answer. Uh, it's, it's very weird when you have to tell your kid to go to high school and then to go to the university and then to go to, you know, to, to a postgraduate school. And you see the owner of Sarah, richest man on earth, that has probably neither uh, studied in the, in, the, in the high school nor in the university. Right. Uh, so intuition is important, hard work is important, um, and also a little bit of being in the right place in the right time. But um, we, are, we are encouraging our kids to study, and many successful businessmen in Spain and abroad has, hasn't studied at all. So what is it that they did right? I mean, uh, why did these companies originate in Spain? Um, is it the middle class market that allowed them to get you know, a, a early market share? The, 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 there are two kinds of companies that are successful now. Some were uh, developed under uh, some protection of the government, like Telefonica, right. before the, the freedom of market. Uh, so they have like a lot of advantage to develop and put the prices they wanted. But then they, you have these kind of very strange cases like uh, Sarah, that it's hard to explain. You, you can read all the books around the Sarah case, still difficult to understand. Mm. Now it's, uh, it's a worldwide admired company and the guy in charge um, has no titles, no diplomas. It's... Uh, it's part of the Spanish DNA. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is so extended. Uh, seven out of ten youngsters or Gen Y guys in Spain, when you ask them if they want, what do they want to be when they grow up, they say they want to work for the state, for the public sector. <laughs> well, I mean, employment is what twenty four percent. 
you know, for young people. Yes, but... So, the, I, I mean, like, they probably don't have a lot of hopes for getting a job to start with. Yes, that is true. But this is a, an historic uh, number that hasn't changed a lot. Right. They're looking uh, the security of uh, being in the state because they will never be fired. Well, you know, that nowadays nothing is for sure. But um, if you ask the same question in California, or maybe in the UK, the answer would be all the way around. Yeah. 70% uh, would say, I want to be an entrepreneur. Or be Elon Musk. Yes, yeah. I want to be Elon Musk. I want to be Peter Thiel. I want to be whoever. Uh, I want to be Jeff Bezos. I want to create something from zero. I want to be uh, the owner of my domain, of my destiny. Uh, I, I think the cultural change in Spain has started, I, I must say. Uh, there is a um, lot of young people um, that are starting to change this cultural gap that was pretty much um, um, attached to, to the society. Yes. So I think we, we, if we don't fall into this um, party of uh, left-wing uh, popular... Well, I mean, politics in Spain, just like in America, has become a very divisive issue lately. Yes. And uh, uh, you're seeing the rise of you know, in Austria, far right parties, but you're seeing in the rise of Spain, far left. Yes. Uh, what, 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 is, what is driving this sort of massive swings in, in populism? Uh, I think, well, if you, if you go back in history, you will find that uh, every time we, we face a crisis, uh, the, the, the far right or the far left, they grow. Right. Because people need to find, you know, a daddy that protects them. And this is not the same issue as the Basque separatists, is it? No, no, not at all. No, no. I think the Basque uh, country issue and the Catalonian situation are very different from this. We're talking about a, a situation that is pretty much related on one side with, with the crisis itself, the economic crisis and social crisis itself. On the other hand, the, the party on the government is, is a very well uh, manager but all his uh, party is was so much into corruption that even they are doing the things very very good on the government. People do not want to trust these people. Yeah. So the option is the bad guys that steal that are in the government, or the bad guys that don't steal but they will steal and they don't know how to manage. <laughs> so the the, the 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 option is bad and worse. What do we do? Do, do? do you feel like I mean when you when you track what's happening in other countries a lot has to do with social media. Yes. In that, you know, when, when Twitter and Facebook and YouTube first came out, there was a belief that it was opening up the democratic process. People were becoming more aware. But if anything, it's, it's kind of shrinking debate to 140 characters. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, the, the, the new parties are pretty much using social media as their main channel or, or, or bridge to reach the potential voters or, or the media in general. And, uh, um, and this social media uh, st strategy and implementation of the strategy is being handled by youngsters that are probably 20, 22, 24 years old, that they haven't even read any history book. And they are the owners of the, of, of the, of the internet right now with their um, Twittering or, or Facebooking or Snapchatting or whatever. Uh, it's, it's, it's not an easy context, it's a, it's a new context. Uh, that open new questions and new challenges. Mm. And it's very interesting that since we are living in a very interconnected world, we, we learn a lot from this process. Because one thing was the social media campaign Obama did back in 2007. And another thing is what the guys right now are doing that has nothing to do with that. 
In what way? In terms of the content or the use of technology or data? I, I believe that the, uh, the, the, the social media team that took or helped took uh, Obama to the White House was a very uh, professional team. Um, they, they have and the re-election. I mean, we, we actually and, had, yes. I had Harper Reid on the show uh, a couple of months ago. And I mean, these guys were data scientists. Uh, and, and, and they, 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 they shake the society and they shake some people and they, they, they make they um, commit with a cause. And, and of course, Obama, especially on the first election, a little bit less on the second one, he was, he was a ray of light in the middle of, of, of a nightmare, in the middle of, of nowhere. And, uh, and, and, and the sense of hope and the need of hope and the need of change was like very well uh, uh, managed by him. Here, I think that the the debate is, 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 is not professional. It's more about, you know, bringing down the rival or the opponent than bringing value to the discussion. Uh, it's more about uh, finding um, all the bad things that the opponent do uh, rather than to put it on the table. Look, this is our proposal. These are our ideas. We want to debate. We want to put ideas on the table. And, and I think people at the end of the day, they are so like mm, bored of all this discussion that they rather want to put on TV and disconnect. Mm. So politicians are away from people. People are hating the politicians. And this is a very um, dangerous cycle. It's just very strange. You know, I speak to many different people from many different cultures and companies and countries. And it's a very similar dialogue playing out in, yes. in so many regions around the world. Yes. What we were talking earlier about, the, and I know you've written and, and talked about this before, the relationship between culture and brands. Um, one other area that where, where Spain, um, there are some interesting developments there is you're having a lot of Spanish companies like Telefonica, Santander, which are now buying other companies overseas, especially in the UK. Mm -hmm. What are some of the cultural issues where you've got the, uh, the Spanish lifestyle proposition meeting the you know, the British worldview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Are they well, incompatible? I, I think uh, at the very early stages of the of the process are more than incompatible. They are <laughs> they are probably uh, opposite at all level. And it's not easy. Um, you were involved in, in one of these. Yeah, I, I was involved in some in, in some processes where the Spanish company is buying a very important and relevant uh, UK company, and they have to adapt to a new culture, and they have to uh, receive orders from a new CEO, and they have to understand that now the headquarters is not in Birmingham or in Manchester or in London; it is in Madrid or in Barcelona, and um, the the resistance is 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 tremendous. It's uh, it's 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 not easy. But I have to also say that even though the, the topic of the typical Spanish guy that sleeps the siesta and enjoy life and doesn't work hard, there is another group of Spanish people and professionals and, and, and managing directors and staff uh, that are very good and very professional in doing things. And I think that at the end of the day, there is no other way than to put sitting down at the table and adapting to the new times. Uh, it's uh, not only the Spanish companies buying in the UK, also buying in Australia or in the US. Yeah. And this is this is a game change again, because normally the, the, the big countries with big companies used to buy in this smaller countries, smaller companies. But now who determine, determines the size and who is buying what? Um, 
And this is a very interesting change, but I think culture will, will play a very relevant role in how the outcome of this, uh, it's not a merger, it's more like an acquisition, will, will, will end, especially without affecting the, the, the B2C moment that is the, the client on the street or on the bus or on the metro. But there's, a, there's a parallel as well to traditional companies buying startups. And you know, I, I think there's often a case where, where companies need to reach some kind of cultural sink or at least cultural compromise. So what are some strategies that, that you've seen work that where two companies that have different cultures can start to essentially work together more effectively? It, it, it's difficult uh, to, to find good examples because uh, normally um, most of the companies do not know the culture they have. They, they they have a business plan. They have a balance sheet. They have a right. So they can't even they can't even define their own. Yes, culture. when you <laughs> I I remember sitting down in one of the top ten companies in Spain uh, with with thirty top managers and asking them to write down two things. Um, what makes them different from the rest, and to define the values that they were representing as an organization. There were twenty managers. 19 different answers. <laughs> so how can you go and, 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 and bring this to, to, to life or to other countries? And also it's very interesting because some companies are buying other companies because of their culture. Yeah. But once it, the, the, the deal is over and the company belongs to them, they want to change the culture they bought. So the only value that the other company has for them that was their culture is being changed. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> I think a good example for this not not of this of of this, but on the contrary, that a company buys another culture and leaves the culture to 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 be as it was, is when Amazon bought Sappos. Sappos today is the same culture that it was and that it will be. In fact, if anything, it's got stranger. Yes, yes, <laughs> maybe, <clears throat> but but uh, as far as I know, uh, there was no no change there, mm. and. Um, here, here the, 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 the new ecosystem of, of startups that is all around because there is a lot of money in the marketplace. Well, we're talking about Telefonica. Right? I mean, uh, Telefonica is, is doing incredible things, you know, with innovation and startups yes. and R&D and mm. acquisitions. Uh, but I, I liked your comment earlier where you said really there's two Telefonicas. There's, there's probably more than two, but two uh, at least. One is the one you have, you have just described, and the other one is... You, you, you call over the phone to a phone company or to a telecommunication company and you have to do 23 phone calls to have at least an answer. I have lived on my own skin, problems with Telefonica, and at the end of the day, my only solution was to put some tweets on Twitter and then I got some solutions because through the normal channels, it was impossible. So you're talking about innovation and revolution and evolution and new times, but you don't know how to pick up and answer the phone. I guess if you're, if you're the leader of the company, you, you can see obviously that it was it, it's actually easier to disrupt your industry than it is to fix your core business. Ah, <laughs> of course. Of Which course. sounds ridiculous, but but I guess what they probably rightly did was is that it may take us 20 years to get customer service right, but we can start betting on companies that will probably break the model. Um, it, it's, it's interesting what's happening with companies right now. Like uh, two weeks ago, Toyota invested heavily yeah, on, Uber, on Uber. Right? Yes. Yeah. And that was, uh, I read the other day that the, the, the vision of Toyota is that 
you will buy a Toyota and you will pay it by uh, dri driving Ubers. And it's very, very strange kind of a business model. Probably it's only just, you know, uh, a news that it's not relevant. But uh, then the government of Saudi Arabia invested 3.5 billion in Uber as well. I've got a, I've got a secret a suspicion about that. Okay. It, it's the ultimate solution and hack to avoid letting women drive. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's probably a, a very good solution, uh, but still it will not fix the problem with, with human rights. I, uh, I gave a speech in Saudi Arabia once and uh, it, was this, it was this big innovation conference. And there was, there was lots, lots of very innovative discussions and there was a panel on you know, the future of Saudi Arabia and, and innovation and disruption. And the following panel was about, should we let women drive? Yes. And I just thought this, <laughs> this is ridiculous. It's a parallel universe. But, but, but about parallel universe, uh, only a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, three, three workshops for three top 20 companies in Spain, two of which were from abroad, but they are like still one of the top companies in Spain. And, and the CEO was there and the director of change was there and the director of innovation and the director of human resources, everyone was in the room. And they were explaining me that the, the, their vision is to put the customer in the center of the strategy. And you look at them and say, sorry, you haven't done this until today and now you're going to do it. What, what, what have you been doing until now? Where was the customer before? Yes, where was the customer? There was no customer before. Now, um, I, I think there is a lot of uh, companies that are reading probably your books or my books or maybe some blogs and they're just starting to repeat what the trend is. Mm. But we're not talking about trends. We're talking about a, a real human necessity that if the companies do not identify and apply, they will disappear. Mm. Uh, and this trend is also starting to be, um, how do you say, like... Um, listen and performed by cities and by countries. Hmm. Many years ago, only a couple of countries have a country brand strategy or a city brand strategy. Currently, everyone is starting to battle for your attention and for your money. How many of those are doing it well? Probably not uh, the majority because they are fitting in instead of standing out. Hmm. So how can we change these minds? I think these kind of initiatives could be, you know, a ray of light in so <laughs> in in this ocean of mediocrity. When you when you talk about disruption, people often talk about you know Silicon Valley and the United States. Uh, but I know you spend a lot of time speaking in uh, throughout Latin America, mm -hmm. not just Bogota, of course. Are you seeing some different perspectives on disruption and innovation coming out of Latin America? Um, in the same way that we've we're, we're for sure seeing coming out of China. I give you an example. Uh, the new government of the city of Buenos Aires has just opened a, a representative office of the city in Silicon Valley. Really? At zero cost. Because there are some well-known um, investors, Argentine investors in Silicon Valley that they have said, we want to support our city and our country, so we will find you know a spot and we will support the rent and the expenses and so on. You have lots of companies that have open offices in Silicon Valley, but yeah. cities? Yeah. It's very interesting. And Is it designed to you know, promote uh, startups coming from Argentina to Silicon Valley, or is, are they trying to learn how to run a better city? I, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a mix of many of those things that you mentioned. It's also about uh, giving the opportunity to, to some um, 
um, entrepreneurs from Argentina to go and learn from some others in the US and then come back and develop their their business. But also this is uh, a, a thing, a wave that is happening in Uruguay, in Chile, in Colombia, in Ecuador, in Peru. I think there, there is a, a new mindset that it's uh, putting effort in, in, the, in, the, in the youngsters and not in the young, because at the end of the day, if you analyze the average age for a, an entrepreneur is 45 years old. That, so that's young or it's not young. I don't know. I'm 46. I consider myself young, but everyone talks about young at, at 20. Uh, I think in Latin America, uh, there is something that in Europe there, there is not, that is necessity. Right. And necessity is the mother of innovation and of invention. And when you have necessity, there was a, a fabulous case in, in Peru. You know that uh, Peru is probably the, one of the driest, what well, the driest country in, in South America. Uh, you don't have rain in Lima during the whole year, only a little bit of uh, drops. And one a, um, technological and engineer university, they put this billboard like in a highway, like in the middle of the desert with some specific panels that could um, uh, capture uh, humidity from, from the air. Hmm. Through these uh, panels, humidity went down the billboard and through a tube, they become uh, water. So uh, from little villages and towns around these kind of billboards, people could have uh, drinking water from the air. So it was amazing. And also it was amazing because the university was saying, we're not going to tell you what we will do. We show you what, we, what we're doing. So they were encouraging children to come and develop this kind of solution for, for I think that now they have like 200 of these uh, poles where they're bringing water. That is something that the state should have done to very poor people that don't have the access to water. It's a great example because often when we talk about innovation, we're looking for evidence of someone starting another Facebook, Google or something like that. But the truth is, is that so much of improvements in material science and, and, and access to knowledge actually leads to people innovating to improve their basic life conditions. Yes. And, and, and there, there was there were a couple of guys uh, that a month ago they presented, I think through Fast Company, hmm. uh, a, like a windbreaker a, for refugees, but the windbreaker once you take it out becomes a tent. Right. So you can you can have your own tent and your own um, jacket. Yes. Uh, and they mentioned that they went like to I don't know how many governments uh, and NGOs to present the project to fund to fund it to to give it for free for the refugees and and. Uh, up to what I know, they receive zero, zero <laughs> money. So we are looking for innovators that can save the world or solve the problems of the world or give solutions to the world because Snapchat is okay, Facebook is okay, but what we need is innovation that is useful for people. Yes, and, and certainly when you, when you look at markets across South America, people don't have the luxury of you know, wondering what to do. If, if you don't work hard, you don't survive. Exactly. And, and, and this brings us also to creativity. Hmm. Uh, when, when, when people in Europe tell me or, or in Spain, oh, the guys in Argentina are so creative. Yes, they have to be creative. We have to be creative because if not, we disappear. The, the, the challenge, the battle is so hard, it's so tough. It, it's so unfair at some point that you need to be creative all the time, 24 hours a day. Uh, I always say that in Argentina, if we we could have used all the creativity for good and not sometimes or a lot of time for bad, Argentina could nowadays 
could have been Canada or Australia instead of being a third world country. So given that, and, and given, I guess, the differences that we spoke about before between the kind of Spanish lifestyle concept and Latin America, do you think that Spain and Latin America still have that same link as, can you call this Hispanic and Latin America? Or do you think really Spain is just part of Europe now? No, no, I, th- I, I think um, even though Spain is, of course, part of Europe, the, the, the commercial relationship, the cultural relationship, the religious relationship between uh, Spain and Latin America is really strong. Hmm. Uh, this doesn't mean that everyone loves Spain due to the things that happened over 500 years ago. But I think uh, nowadays the perception of uh, Spain is, is more positive than negative. Uh, back in the 90s, when a wave of privatization took over lots of countries uh, in South America and the Telefonicas and the Endesas and the Indras and all these big companies came to to, to these countries. Uh, I remember uh, the front cover, I think it was Time Magazine, it was saying the, the second... Uh, Conquestadors. The, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, but I think uh, the, the same way Argentina has been very good uh, with Spain when after the Civil War or after the Second World War, Spain ha- has also been good to Argentina and to many other countries. Now it's the, the situation is difficult, for instance, with Venezuela. Yeah from every single aspect. It's very complicated. But I think uh, the, the Spanish language is uh, it's, it's a very strong link that will remain. It's said there are some thoughts that can only be um, conceived of in certain languages. So, I mean, the French uh, pretty much own all ideas of love. Uh, yes. The, the tr- ancient Greek, they said, was fantastic for philosophy. So what are some thoughts that you think can only be really fully conceived in Spanish? That... Oh, well, uh, a common place would be siesta, of course. <laughs> eh? It's difficult to get out of that topic. Um, I think we can go back to the beginning of the conversation where if you think about a country where the balance, life, uh, professional, uh, it's perfect, it's very hard to find a better place. Uh, Spain has a great climate, uh, distances are quite cool. There's not a lot of distance between one point and the other. Food is extraordinary. Uh, people are quite gently and passionate of what they do. Sport, it's all around. Uh, infrastructure is very, very good. Um, the public state of health and of education, we have to say, the health, uh, uh, it's much better than the education, of course. And I think it's a, it's a country that has the gift of being in Europe. I think that if Spain wouldn't have been in Europe and would have been in Latin America, maybe today Spain would have been closer to Venezuela than to France or the UK. Uh, at some point, uh, being close to, to the big guys, uh, sometimes you feel it like a disadvantage, but at the end of the day, I think it's an advantage. Probably a lesson that Britain should uh, pay good heed to. <laughs> uh, let's see what happens with the, we, we are heading into a very complicated uh, era of uh, um, elections, Brexit, US, China. Uh, we're not going to be bored for sure. And it's great to see you and thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much for the invitation and a big hug for everyone. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit 
www.mike-walsh.com/slash between worlds.